0: Welcome to the Disrupt Your Career podcast, brought to you by Claire Harbour and Antoine Thirard. We're passionate about helping everyone find fulfillment in their work life. We believe that big, messy, uncharted career changes are inevitable, and it's up to you to decide. Will you take control and disrupt, or allow yourself to be disrupted? We wrote the book about it. And now we share here our conversations with other thinkers in this crucial area. Settle down and get ready to listen to this dose of wisdom. So this time on the Disrupt Your Career podcast, we're speaking with Tyo Roxon. He is a multilingual, multicultural polymath with a long list of career highs and all kinds of cultural adventures, which we'll get into as we converse that's absolutely a man after my own heart. So, Tayo, welcome.
1: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be on your show.
0: Thank you so much. So let's get going. Let's, let's, start go. Career let's journey. go. You're a young guy, but let's do it. You've been through several pivots and changes in your career already, ranging from working in marketing and nonprofits, through a ton of writing and editing for a huge range of publications, into consulting on diversity and inclusion, working for clients such as Google and many top corporate leaders. You also have a podcast as told by nomads, various academic roles in at least two continents and you are indeed a polymath. Why don't you tell us how this extraordinary career unfolded? Was it by design or serendipity?
1: I got to commend you on actually bringing up my marketing. I studied it for my undergrad and my MBA and so it's a big part of what I do with brand strategy but it's the part that people don't talk about enough and it makes sense because it's not as sexy as other things lately. However, it started with that. It's storytelling. Everything, the through line with marketing, through line with diversity, equity, inclusion, teaching, writing, has to do with storyline. And and I was always on the quest of figuring out what story I wanted to tell about myself. You know, when I was a kid, I'm from Nigeria. We spent the first decade in and out of three military regimes, and I was always fascinated by stories of of freedom because I was initially under some heinous dictatorships. And uh, we would always watch these leaders in exile talk on TV. And we, I knew what not to say, or what to say, depending on the regime. And then when we transitioned to civilian rule, my father's job as a diplomat started to take us to different parts of the world. And then then it was the story of who I was going to be. It, because you go to this American International School, you're Nigerian, you, ha- you have different accents, you have different types of food. And Everybody else has a different culture and and people already have a story about you. But, you know, you're like, who am I? Yeah, I'm 10 years old. And so I, I had a huge identity crisis then. You know, people used to make fun of my name and the food and cultures. And I went through a period of just dimming my light and being really good at being a chameleon to understand what was happening. And so in the quest of understanding that it became really clear that there's a certain hierarchy sometimes with cultures where if you're more American or more European or you have a different sort of accent, you get seen with more respect. And I even used to go by my last name, Roxanne, throughout my middle school because people used to just couldn't say my first name. Tayo short for Akin Then I came back to Nigeria for boarding school and, and it was the other story of how everybody thought I was American all of a sudden. And it was an interesting challenge having to prove my own passport country identity in a boarding school. I was fortunate enough to be the head boy, but it was such a challenge in the sense that I had just gone through a very depressive three, four years in middle school, even though I had great experiences on the outside. I was looking and I was played all the sports and then did everything, but I, I just was so just depressed <laughs> and I would write then. And then when I came back to high school, I was still depressed, but I was having anxiety attacks. But we didn't know what it was. (laughs) And so the first time I had a a, a panic attack, it just fell down on on the assembly floor. They thought it was a heart attack. So they took me to the hospital. And no no one said anything because they just thought, they said, you're fine. You're like, I don't know what the issue is. And so I went back to school. I suppressed it. And all the suppression led me to writing. So I started writing poetry. I started writing stories. I started really reflecting on my identity. And then I came to the United States and I, I signed a contract to myself and I said, I am everything at once. And I can't keep trying to be this too Nigerian here or too American here or too this here or too that. And so there was a certain freedom that came with me accepting the nuance and the intersections. And then that's when you know I went into college and I, you know, I initially went there for pre-law because my father said, if you're a lawyer, you can do anything. But um, I secretly wanted to be a basketball player, but I just, <laughs> I wasn't quite good enough. So I switched to marketing and uh, that's the story.
0: So, law, basketball, or marketing, that's quite a big contrast. That's for sure. (laughs) There's a wall full of basketball trophies of all different kinds behind Tayo.
1: So, yeah, I mean, I've always loved basketball, football, tennis. Those are my three, but I hadn't practiced enough to be as good as I wanted to be because I was always in the schools. And, you know, if you have Nigerian parents, (laughs) that was not necessarily (laughs) something that they initially wanted me to do. I owned my identity eventually, came to acceptance, which is very important in with someone dealing with a crisis and dealing with several mental health that has to do with your self-esteem. And then I, I found power in telling that story. That's just a part of the story, but I didn't want to hog the whole first question. That's just me getting to the United States.
0: That's great. That's really interesting. But I'm definitely fascinated to know What then happened? So you started owning your identity, being more comfortable with it, seeing storytelling as a route to perhaps both self-acceptance and getting yourself out in the world. You're studying marketing. Tell us about the first few stages of your career, where you were drawn and how that worked out.
1: First few stages. When I immediately came to the United States, I had a zest for life. In a sense, I felt very free. For the first time, you know, I was out of not necessarily bad shackles, but I was like I'm gonna be for by myself for the first time. You and I was in boarding school, but this is like my parents are in Vietnam, I'm here. My parents told me you're the father, because I came with my younger brother. So I I felt ready for everything. I felt like everything I'd learned was there, and so I joined every marketing club I was. A nonprofit VP of like two nonprofits. And so I thought I was doing everything I was supposed to do. And then I graduated uh, and I had over 85 plus job rejections. And so here I was at a marketing degree, business management degree, minor in French. A lot of the rejections had to do with the fact that I was not a citizen. The story then became, well, to find a job, <laughs> whatever job, <laughs> whatever job so you can, uh, you know, uh, get your H-1B visa. And so I remember going to a former previous internship I had had. And as you said, you look, I'm pretty good at social media. Maybe I can, you know, social media is new. I know people don't really know it yet. Can I do it? You know, it's (laughs) marketing-ish. And so they begrudgingly took me on. And then as soon as I got on, they changed my role to a sales role. And so I remember having this conversation myself saying, I can't complain. At least I have a job. It's not what I wanted to do, but, you know, Who am I? And so I had this defeated mindset after that because, you know, I thought 85 plus, you know, I'm I'm trying everything. Nothing is working. And, you know, if I can stay here, I'll I'll stay here. So I I was in a job I hated for a while. And then uh, 10 years ago, ironically, last week was the 10th anniversary. I got into this car accident that nearly took my life away. And then in the midst of that car accident, as I was pushing through the door to get out of it, I had the wake up call essentially where I just asked myself, Well, you almost died. Have you done anything you said you wanted to do? You know, and I was this kid who was inspired by the late Nelson Mandela and all these freedom fighters and who had books of poetry he had never really shared. And I had all these hidden dreams, a basketball player or someone who was a speaker, writer. And here I was, you know, at the time 22, about to almost dead. And and then I couldn't really say anything for myself. And so, surviving that really became the catalyst. So I started re-engineering everything. I used my marketing degree to launch my website. And I started telling the story of who I, I was. And then the first thing I needed to do, I realized, was I needed to change my environment. I didn't like where I was, and it wasn't helping me. So I quit my job, which was pretty scary for many people when you just got an H-1B visa and then you, you quit its job. <laughs> and so you have to think about it. You either get married, you go to school, or you get another job. And so for me, the path was to go to school. So I quit my job after I got accepted into school in New York. So I came down in status, H-1B visa to F-1 visa. And for those that don't know, H-1B visa is a work visa. F-1 visa is a student visa. And so I came down in status to that. And then I didn't have the same privileges, but I felt free. And I felt like I could use the two years in New York to explore. So I launched a podcast. And then my website started to pick up speed as I started to talk about third culture kids stories, which is people that grew up and spent the formative periods of their lives inside, outside of the parents' cultures. And so it was the first time I really could see everything put together, marketing degree, packaging, storytelling, telling my story, and then bringing out people to tell the story. And then um, you know, I did that for a few years. And then after that, I, I started to see that I was uniquely positioned to tell stories about diversity, inclusion, and equity, but I was also uniquely positioned to consult given my lived experience and also the business experience I had 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 working with marketing agencies as well as just having so many people on my podcast from different backgrounds. And so I put uh, all that together and then uh, the career ensued.
0: (laughs) (laughs) A career. What an amazing notion, huh? To encapsulate so many different things. What would you say are the lessons you learned along the way in this early stage and even up till now? Pretty major things happened. So if we force you to choose one or two lessons, what would you talk about? There's always
1: this idea of ensuring that you spend a significant amount of your life knowing who you are and who you want to be. And for me, the moments I strayed away from that were the the moments that I I struggled the most. I mean, certainly I had Several moments where you know I'm, I'm broken one of the most expensive cities in the world, but I feel happy at the same time because it's something I want to do. However, when I look back, the career that I have now, whether it's being a professor, writer, speaker, consultant, they all stem from different elements of particular pain or passion of mine. And so, I would always tell anyone that the piece you can get from. Doing something that fully feeds aspects of your identity is is worth more than trying to find peace in someone else's version of who you're supposed to be. So there's that. And then your environment is the second thing I'll pick up. I think it's very important to evaluate and assess your environment and see if it's actually facilitating your success or being part of your failure, your mindset. So those would be the two things I would say.
0: Interesting. Tell me a little bit more about environment. Are you talking about the people you circulate with or the place, or both. There are so many different ways it can be interpreted, and I'm certainly a big fan of the idea that it's very important. Tell me what you think. <laughs> when
1: you think about your environment, especially if you're able to, and especially once you start getting into the point where you're able to, it could be a circle of friends who sort of, I don't know, maybe they give you membership in a certain group, but you know they're not feeding an aspect of your soul. Or it could be a mental environment that you're constantly putting in yourself. So whether you're in the wrong relationship professionally or personally, or you're surrounding yourself with people based on whatever status you feel like it's going to help you, but it's not feeding your soul. And then the physical place, you know, for me, New York City was very different from a town called Lynchburg, unfortunately. <laughs> and, and so, you know, Lynchburg, Virginia was a very small college town, very, very conservative. And I'm more of a progressive in general, but that time Being spent in conservative areas, progressive gave me a lot of insights that I I would then go on to use. Which is is funny how life works. But yeah, it was like a small college town that was an extension of the university there. New York City is is just like everyone. I grew up. I'm from Lagos, Nigeria, and I get a certain energy knowing something is always happening, even just the traffic and you know whatever's going on. It's just Mm. a certain calm and peace that I get from the chaos there. And so for me. I knew that I, I was more of a city guy in that sense. And so that gave me life. For others, it drains them. And so some people might need to go to the opposite. <laughs> and so I just needed to find a, a place like that. You know, I guess there'll be cities like London, you know, Tokyo, all those types of cities, they give me life. And so for me, it was important for me to get that excitement because I never wanted to feel complacent and I'm always on the go. And the city mirrored my personality in that sense. Fantastic.
0: Tell me a little bit about how having this massive portfolio of activities is actually feasible. How do you balance having your own consulting firm <laughs> with all the other things that you do?
1: When I was in the, getting my MBA, I was just doing everything that I felt like I needed to do. And then I found a way to umbrella it. I was talking a lot about belonging and accessibility and diversity and, and inclusion. And so for me, I always tell people I, I study human behavior across cultures. And and my goal is to dismantle any system of oppression and suppression. And so for me, seeing it through that lens, if it's a marketing firm, eliminating an entire group of people based on whatever they show visually or how they write something, it still fits the same sort of thing for me. Or me using my voice to tell a story. I recognize what a black man and the black Nigerian man. It depending on the circumstance, right? It could be just the, the visual element represents to other youth. And so just talking in that sense, because to me, this the question you ask sometimes I feel like is part of why people feel like they can't do what they're supposed to do. I feel like people are limitless, not limited. And mm-hmm. we've been told so many times that you're supposed to do this one thing as opposed to recognizing that no one is just one thing. And so for me, I just show up and say, hey, this is what I do. I'm teaching communication. I communicate. I am a public speaker. It makes sense. Obviously, I'll be a good public speaker there. I can teach about psychological safety. I can talk about that all the time. So it's just like this natural extension for me, just in different areas.
0: Brilliant. I mean, that absolutely aligns with the way we work too. And uh, the idea that things are additive and generative rather than restrictive and limited, certainly resonates well. And I hope it will encourage many of the listeners to think that way too. Let's just go back to young professionals, people who are starting out. You've talked about, you know, looking for things that truly reflect who you are and that kind of thing. But if you were to give advice to a group full, a classroom full of 20-year-olds about to graduate, what would you be telling them about how to start their careers?
1: I always tell everybody to at least have their own website, their domain name. And I know there are common names out there. So you keep, maybe it's a variation of your middle name and your first name or something like that. But even if you don't know what it is, when I first got into that cracks and I, you know, before it was tyroxan.com, it was Tyroxin speaks. I don't know why I didn't <laughs> think I should just do the Broxan. But <laughs> luckily nothing happened where someone could just take my domain name in between the year and a half that I was experimenting with that. But. The reason why that's important is because you can start to control your narrative, right? That usually when you do your search, if you have a domain name, it shows up. And that way you can experiment. You know, I initially was writing about just sports in general, and then I found my way into interviews and it led to the podcast. That level of discovery is so important for you to figure out because some people, especially a lot of um, young people in today's generation, you can find that with the tools you have today, whether it's Shopify, whether it's TikTok, you know, and social media, you can tell a story with a platform or pivot based on the information that your audience gives you. I used to listen a lot to a lot of what was happening in my podcast, where, you know, some of the guests would say, hey, can you talk more about how you get a job? Or can you talk more about what it's like to deal with the mental health issues? Or can you talk about what it's like to be Nigerian in different parts, or just an African in general, as this, and and the nuance between this range. And all those things I used to always, I still do, actually, I used to just take as feedback. But that won't happen if you don't create, a platform that you can control and other people can elect to opt in based on what you provided. And based on that feedback, you then start to see what people like and what people don't like. And then you get to decide if you care or not, <laughs> and giving the feedback. And then uh, there's that. But uh, start your domain name. Don't worry if you don't know what it's supposed to be yet, but just even secure it.
0: That's nice. Thinking about really creating a playground, an experimental laboratory in which you get to figure out who you are and what might work and constantly adapt and evolve. That's a beautiful recommendation. Thank you. Let's talk about your book. Use Your Difference to Make a Difference. Beautiful title. What was your motivation to write it and what need are you trying to address with the book? I'm trying to
1: show people how to connect effectively across cultures. I believe personal branding and cultural competency are two of the most important skills we need to have in today's world. And so, I just talked about the importance of personal branding there just so you can own your narrative. But cultural competency in the sense that a lot of people don't know how to just connect across cultures. There's been several dominant narratives. What you can look at it what is patriarchy or you can anything from the race, from gender, from gender identity, religion even to certain dominant narratives and when you have a dominant narrative, that means it's like essentially the default or the accepted by certain institutions. And I like disrupting, <laughs> and I think disrupting is also going to be very important, especially nowadays as the the world becomes smaller with all the technologies we have. And so I, I just continue to see a lot of the problems we had today as problems relate to someone's different, you know, with different religion. Let's suppress them. Different gender, let's find a way to keep our in-group. Different country, different this. And so I, I looked at history and I saw a lot of people just haven't had a good reaction to anything different. So I that was my motivation. And, you know, I started saying, use your difference to make a difference from an innocent writing assignment I gave myself. It ended up being one of the last sentences I was using as I was dissecting a, um, a song called Am I Wrong by Nico and Vince. And then I came back to look at it and I thought, oh my gosh. I think I might have accidentally stumbled on what my mission statement is going to be. <laughs> and then I just kept using it because it encapsulated everything I've been trying to say. And this goes to what I was saying earlier. You just start writing and doing what you you want to do, or if it's talking or speaking, or you find that your voice is hidden somewhere there. But that's what the book is about. It's really about connecting and communicating in a cross-cultural world.
0: Fantastic. So, I mean, the book talks about the practical skills that you can develop to transcend barriers to bridge cultures and cultivate strong relationships with pretty much anyone, anywhere. But if you were to boil down the main ideas of the books, so, you know, a few tips and tricks, what would these be? So it's broken down
1: into three sections. Educate, don't perpetuate, instead communicate, which that's the poet and me. <laughs> but the education aspect has to do with education of self and environment. So figuring out what your biases, triggers, and values are. and then understanding how that interacts with the environment that you're in and how the environment interacts with you based on how you now have become aware of yourself. I don't think a lot of people know themselves, honestly. So that's why I started that way. And then the don't perpetuate has to do it now that you know all these things, how can you ensure that you're not perpetuating? You're not part of the problem. You're not ensuring that you're doing the same sort of thing. And then the communicators there's different ways to open dialogue with people. It's you're bound to have disagreements, but how can you open dialogue where you're not entirely dismissive because you know of your lived experience and so that's what the the book is broken down there and then sprinkled in between our some of my research and some of my personal stories.
0: Fantastic now if we were to get really specific and think about the main purpose of of our audience which is people tuning in to get advice about how to manage their own careers or indeed people who are leading organizations and are helping to manage the careers of others. What little gems could we take from your book or even enormous, great, massive gemstones can we take and think about how an individual might be able to tell a better story or be more confident in their communication or anything else that's particularly relevant to career management and strategy?
1: So it's so funny you asked about the communication. I, so semester starts today in the United States. I am going to teach my students later today. And this particular course that I'm teaching is public speaking. When I teach public speaking or even communication as large, I always tell, I always ask people if they know what their voice is. And I think our voices are most underutilized assets. So if you're a business person, you're just someone who maybe you're not even front facing, but you're behind the scenes. Do you still know what your voice is? And what I mean by that is, do you know what it is that you are trying to solve? What is the problem you're trying to solve? And do you know how you fit into that puzzle? And so I'm trying to solve a lot of cultural incompetency issues and a lot of um, systemic oppression. And the way I fit in to that is me understanding that visually I represent something. It could be a threat to some audiences or it could be hope to another audience. And there's an importance in telling that story so other people understand that as well. But personally, I've also had the lived experience of being fired twice, uh, leaving a job, and having over 100, you know, 85-plus job rejections between that and then more rejections after that. And there's a certain story of resilience that doesn't get told about people that look like me. And so me saying that and showing up as a professor to other kids who look like me gives them hope to find their own versions of that. So what is the problem you're trying to solve? First question, how do you fit into that problem? And then why you? (laughs) And then you start to find interesting stories hidden between them. Ever since I was a kid, I always loved this or I always liked this or I just needed the money. And because I need the money, I save enough money so I can go to the real passion or my wife likes this or my husband likes that. All those stories, even though we don't think are important, allow you to find clarity and give you a certain confidence that, is needed. Because if you don't ask yourself these questions, what happens is you find yourself being so reactive. We got the company report, so I'm just going to react to that. Oh, we got the company mission statement. Okay, that's what we're going to do. And I'm like, well, I'm always asking, what does that mean to you? Why does it matter to you? And so that'll be the first tip. And then just don't stop dreaming is the second thing I would say. Whatever job you have, make sure that you still have the other thing that you love to do. If it's, Going out to play tennis on Saturdays or going to, you know, write in your secret romance novel that you wanted to do under your pseudonym, whatever it is. Those things you find will feed into whatever passion you have for your existing job, just because it'll be a dormant aspect of your identity that's been waiting to be fed.
0: Beautiful. Thank you. Let's get to the subject of career transitions or pivots, which, of course, you know a lot about personally. We do too. And it's definitely one of our big disruptive pet subjects. Your podcast has had many guests on who've either made pivots themselves or who talk about why and how to do so. Can you share some of the best insight on the subject?
1: I don't hope anyone goes through this. A lot of pivots that I've heard have to do with something drastic happening,
0: it's a reality. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, for me, it was a car accident. I hope no one has to go to that disease and illness, a loss and all these things. But the reason I'm even starting there is there's something about a loss or such a huge disappointment that shakes you up your world where you find yourself having to question whether what you've accepted is true or you just find yourself waking up from whatever malaise you've been in. And the thing that is the through line with any of these pivots is you realize something wasn't working anymore. And then you decide to do something about it. And so when you asked me earlier, what I tell young people to do is you have to ask yourself a series of questions. The reason you ask yourself the questions about yourself and your connection with the environment you're in is you start to figure out what works and what doesn't work. And if you're okay with that, some people are actors in their lives when they should be directors. And if you just want to be an actor for a certain time, you might feel comfortable with that, but you can get stuck in an actor role That you end up becoming a small character actor outside of a big blockbuster of someone else's life. And that becomes really a recipe for regret. And so, the big thing I always recognize a lot of uh, pivots is people figure out what's working and what's not working, and they decide to do something to change it. And so, there's that. And so, just ask yourself the same questions Is your life working the way you imagined? Why? Why not?
0: Perfect. Simple. Not necessarily easy, but simple.
1: No, no, no. That's why it's always important to have a good environment and friends, because if you have friends that challenge you as much as you challenge them, they'll be able to call you out on those things as well, because you've communicated that to them. They've communicated their dreams to you. And so if they say, look, Tayo, this is not you. What are you doing? Why do you accept this? It's not OK. Then you you know, you know, have reminders whether you want to or not.
0: Absolutely. And if you don't have friends close enough to you, then, of course, a coach can help too. Anybody who calls out BS is going to be helpful in this process, right?
1: Yes, that's correct.
0: Let's go back to 18-year-old Tayo. I mean, you've told us quite a lot about him. But what advice would you want to give him if you could go back and talk to him now?
1: I'll just tell him it would be okay. I I figured out a lot about my mental health in reverse. I didn't know I was depressed until... My 20s, I didn't know I had panic attacks until my 20s. You know, I just used to just suppress everything. i and the oldest. You feel like you have this tremendous amount of pressure and you can't really tell anyone. <laughs> and, you know, you, you have a smile at everybody. Oh, it's tired of smiling. So I would just tell them to breathe. You know, it's going to be okay. You don't have to carry the weight of the shoulder, uh, the weight of the world of your shoulder, rather. Breathe. It's going to be Okay. And, you know, cry when you have to cry, you know, you don't have to hide all those versions of yourselves. But yeah, I just remember feeling a tremendous amount of pressure that I didn't know I had outlets for.
0: As you know now, it was going to be all right. Okay, let's think about magic powers again. If you could change one thing about the world of work, what would it be?
1: I think there's so much room for inclusivity. I know this is like, obviously, I'm the DEI guy, but the reason I mean, I'm talking about invisible things. So a lot of our identity is less visible. And I talk to so many people to deal with chronic illnesses or you have, you're have you pregnant, for example, and all of a sudden the benefits don't line up the same way. The company might not say anything. It might technically be inclusive. There are certain things that if you're a pregnant woman in a mobile environment that you have to go, they won't cover because it they don't do it for everyone else. And I'm like, I think we have a lot of room for me to be more inclusive. And with the invisible illnesses, I have the sickle cell trait. So I I don't have the disease, but I have the trait, which means if I get with someone else that has the sickle cell trait, there's a 25% chance that someone else could get sickle cell. So with that proximity allows me to see what happens when a lot of people deal with sickle cell crisis, because I've seen a lot of that. You can't disclose that at work sometimes for some people, or some people feel like they can't disclose that at work because the workplace won't create an environment for that. And so in the workplace, whether it's virtual or physical, I wish more workplaces created safe environments where people felt like no matter what they're dealing with, it doesn't make them less than in the workplace. And they included that in the benefit package. And they said, if you have any mental health issues, if you have any uh, invisible illnesses or chronic illnesses, I should say, rather, we are here. And these are the opportunities for you to, talk to people to ensure that we provide that. Even just that, right? Just that simple thing over there. And I just think we need to be better about uh, immigrants. (laughs) Oh, yeah. It all centers around that. And I wouldn't have known that if I didn't have the lived experience, but I just feel like there's a surface level inclusivity. And then there's just really getting to know the people you work for and then asking them to tell you what they need.
0: That's a really subtle and important interpretation of the way diversity and inclusion actually work out. And we're very aware from our side that there's a lot of lip service and not quite so much clever interpretation. Clever as in positive, not clever as no, in positive.
1: No, you're right. That's perfect. Is it the it?
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we have to be careful how we use our cleverness, right? <laughs> Okay, so that really brings us to the question of organizations that may or may not be doing things better when it comes to any aspect of talent and career management, which certainly encapsulate DEI in certain respects. So what good examples? Give us some hope. You know, tell us about a couple of organizations where you do see progress being made.
1: So I'm consulting a few companies right now. One of them is a global company, tech company and a global company. And what they've done is have created what you call an ERG, Employee Resource Group. But they've done it, they've they created one for different aspects of who you are. So there's classism, there's an aspect of your religion, and there's aspect of, uh, you know, just your national identity. And in a global company, I think sometimes when you create those safe spaces, you say men, women, LGBTQIA, you forget that there are other aspects of that. Even just that simple idea of, hey, this is your national identity. Let's figure out what you need on that lens. Then you start to understand, oh, there's a visa thing that's different. Or the South African visa is different from the Nigerian visa, is different from the Chinese visa. How do we ensure that we, you know, while you're dealing with the visa waiting times, we're still giving you what you need, right? And it's the same sort of thing with classism where you start to figure out how the way you grew up informed your world. And so, how can you use the privilege and power dynamics? And this organization is inviting people to share aspects of their identity based on the recommendation we gave them. And then they're surprised by what they're seeing. A lot of this is just simply asking. I don't think a lot of people realize that if you ask and invite, you might find out so much more. And I would just say that for any company, try and invite more people to tell you who they are as opposed to dictating who they are. And that inverse will give you so much more information than you ever thought you could have.
0: I think there's an additional rider that's important there, and we discovered this in the research for a recent article on actually first-generation graduates, um, people who'd grown up in environments where they were certainly far and away the only ones going anywhere near universities. And what we found there was that if you don't make that environment where you're asking the questions and inviting safe and welcoming, then there are many people who won't want to go there. We found overwhelmingly that the people we spoke to actually said, you know what, yes, we didn't get much help from our company with regard to feeling at home or understanding the habits and the traditions of the company that we didn't identify with. But actually, we wouldn't have wanted to be in, you know, some kind of special group because that would have demarcated us as different and we wouldn't have wanted mm. that. So it's really complex, isn't it? In terms, Very of-
1: complex, yeah.
0: And any step in that direction is a good one, but it's not as straight lined as one might imagine.
1: There's no one size fits all. You know, what works now is not going to work tomorrow and it- companies have to be OK with that. And that's why it's always important to constantly check in. Hey, you know, I know we tried this last year. Is this working. No, we need something else. We have this. We learned that, you know, so it's important to always check in.
0: Well, that brings us to the last question, really, which is about the future. You know, what exciting projects have you got on the boil for this year or even now? We're goodness, we're back in the back to school period. And it's almost <laughs> like you know, next year's on the horizon. Already
1: here. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm excited to do more, more teaching and more writing. I have a. Uh, a book I'm currently working on. So I'm in the beginning stages of that. There was that. And then I'm curious to see what the education landscape looked like. It's very different from even when I was in school. So I'm curious to see, we're still sort of in the COVID world, you know, how those things lead to impact. Figuring out that challenge is one of my biggest puzzles that I'm trying to solve because it's not always positive given what gets lost now with restrictions. So trying to figure that puzzle out.
0: Well, wonderful. We will look forward to hearing how you go on that front. But Tayo, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on here. I've really enjoyed our conversation. And I feel that there are probably quite a few subjects we could be following up with offline. But in the meantime, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Well, thank you, Claire. Thank you, Claire, for having me. These were great questions and I enjoyed sharing your stories.
0: We hope you enjoyed hearing from this month's guest as much as we did. Do go and check out our work on disrupt-your-career.com and come back soon. Thank you.